0: Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series put on by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by a special guest, Facebook's first general counsel and chief privacy officer, Chris Kelly. Chris is also the founder of Kelly Investments and a co-owner of the Sacramento Kings NBA franchise. So, Chris, I'm excited to talk to you about a number of topics today. You know, first, your experience at Facebook. Second, your thoughts on what's going on more broadly in the technology community. And finally, the intersection of government, tech, and the future of innovation in the U.S. But let's first start off with a little bit more about your background. You know, you've had a lot of different interesting experiences, which I think makes your perspective incredibly valuable. You grew up in Silicon Valley, have degrees from Georgetown, Yale, and Harvard Law. You've worked in government, you've clerked, you've worked at law firms and startups, and then you ended up at Facebook. So talk a bit more about your early career, how it shaped your perspective, and what ended up leading you to being one of the first 25 employees at Facebook.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I thought that as I was, um, you know, going through a variety of different um, early career
2: moves, obviously, you, you know, you make your choices about... Um, you know, about school and, and getting back to law school. I did law school
1: um, actually after I did politics um, for the first time. I dropped out of a PhD program in political theory um, to go to work for uh, for Bill Clinton when he was running for president, and um, had worked in the uh, work that campaign and worked the domestic policy council at the White House and the Department of Education. But you know, I decided that the you know a law degree and legal a legal career was going to allow for a lot of flexibility and that that was you know where i was going to go I, I wasn't sure that i would i was sure that i would come back to silicon valley and having grown up here and seeing the startup culture um it was just a, a, a incredibly vibrant and still is today and you know uh you know knew, knew when i left after spending my first two years of college at Berkeley, I, I decided it was too big and too close to home, and transferred to Georgetown quite explicitly to get away because I knew I would come back eventually. <laughs> um, so uh, when uh, when I, I got to Harvard, the the you know early days of getting together to talk about the way that the internet was going to change the law was at the top of a lot of people's minds, including you know three L's three fields at the time who are still good friends um, Jonathan Zitrain um, uh, Tom spots who's a, uh, a writer in Hollywood but a guy that I had dinner with uh, in San Francisco earlier in the week and uh, Dave Marglin um, who later became the general counsel at Grace note and uh, is still a lawyer in private practice doing primarily IP work um, here in the Bay Area um, and who was also uh, uh, at at this dinner on uh, on monday night uh, up in san francisco um but they were you know uh, working with charlie nesson and arthur miller and charles ogletree and a, and a bunch of different folks um on you know what what this was going to mean and putting together a class that that later became the sort of locus for the berkman center of the berkman Klein center now um and, and so, you know, was sort of plugged into that tech community early on and then was ready to ready to come back out here um, after I graduated. And, of course, I decided to do it in San Diego and try something a little bit different before joining Wilson Sonsini in Palo Alto and, and taking a, a more traditional path into a firm. Um, but but even at the firm, it was um, I, I could see a number of different developing areas, and, and I, I had joined Wilson primarily to uh, to work on the Microsoft antitrust case for Netscape, um, which is one of the exciting things. And I had gotten to do some work on that as a summer associate, and then joined the firm to, to to you know to try to kind of press for innovation in the in the
2: community through antitrust law in the tech community. And um, you know, but
1: but but also ended up working a lot on, on you know digital music issues, uh, representing Diamond Multimedia when we were sued for shipping the first MP3 player, the the Diamond Rio, and um, and and also working with a variety of companies on data and privacy issues, and uh, and that and really sort of saw that as an incredible area of the law, which was underdeveloped and. and you
2: know, that, that was going to become increasingly important as we went from a world that, where most things weren't recorded and there wasn't sort of historical information about what had happened
1: to a world on the Internet where everything could potentially be recorded and, and easily um, and what that would mean in terms of, of privacy and, and data in both for incredible benefits that could be brought to people but also um, risks. So you know, decided to focus on that more and more over time, and and even as I as I went into um, representing companies directly, uh, that that was at top of mind for me.
0: Yeah, and so let's let's take into your time at Facebook a little bit more. You know, I think you had you had two kind of interesting vantage points of, of coming in. One, I think you know, you had a whole host of variety of kind of interesting experiences in the nexus of internet and law. Um, but I think the other piece which was interesting is, you know, once you joined Facebook, um, you really saw a company, you know, grow up before your eyes, right? So it's, yeah. especially in tech these days, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of do the rounds of staying at a place for 12 months, 18 months, and are kind of trying to leverage and go to the next opportunity. But you really had the opportunity to, you know, start at a startup, but then really grow into an executive of, you know, I mean, arguably the most influential tech company of our generation. So. Shed a little bit of light on, you know, kind of your journey to Facebook um, and your time there, you know, how your role developed throughout your tenure. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the digital music work that I had done actually was the proximate cause of, of how
1: I ended up at Facebook. Uh, you know, it, in doing that work and in staying in touch with a variety of people in the digital music community afterwards, um, I had a friend, this guy named Sean Parker, who people have, people have heard of now, and <laughs> yeah. Sean... Um, said to me that I needed to come over and meet Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, and because uh, Sean had ended up over there early on, and um, and and he, you know, said that it was time for them to kind of have a, a more senior legal exec and and to to look at um, a variety of things, and they were about to expand into high schools and were worried about um, safety issues, which I had handled online for Excited Home after we sold my first company to them as, as the chief privacy officer there. And so, um, you know, Sean thought that I would probably be ideal for um, this merging role that they had. And uh, I went over and I met with Mark a couple of times, and and, uh, and we hit it off and had a lot of, you know, thoughts in common. and. Um, he, he wasn't offended when I asked him if his parents still asked him to go back to school,
2: <laughs> and uh, um, he said, "No, they, they, they've kind of they've kind of given up on that now." And I'm like, "Okay, I, I, I get it." And, and I, I later you know, became, and still to this day, I'm very good friends with, with Mark's parents, who are wonderful people, and um, you know they, they, they're they're not regretting
1: the uh, the their lack of insistence <laughs> that, he, that he go back to school. Um, and uh, and so it, it just it, the the fit was right um, for uh, the company trying to think about what it, what it was going to be and how it was going to expand beyond colleges and and I think that there was an understanding that it could be big and and I, I understood that that the fact that it was based on your real world identity and a single identity was you know a key distinguishing factor it was helpful in the safety front. Um, in distinguishing us from MySpace, which was much larger than we were at the time and was, had already expanded into, uh, high schools and, and into young, you know, non-college young adults really at that point And, and was, you know, just much bigger from a, um, in the U S. Um, and,
2: and we, we were still college only, um, about a couple million users when
1: I, when I joined the company. Um, and, and as we said, 25 people, um. You know, over time, you know, as the company began to grow and as we we had you know traction and as we started to
2: do a number of the deals that made it clear
1: that the company would be on a nice you know growth trajectory and be you know a solid company, um, it, it was you know it was kind of fascinating to both be pressed into service around. Um, a lot more of the public policy questions um, that we had, with, as we did European expansion, um, their concerns about privacy were front and center, and we wanted to uh, be as proactive as we could be. Although we knew that there would be some inherent resistance among the data protection commissioners and others about the whole idea of Facebook, <laughs> because they they actually seem to be still deeply uncomfortable with the idea that there would be an internet that would connect everything, um, and so. Um, you know, we, we, we figured that there would be some some interesting kind of discussions and, and, and battles over time, and that that ended up being a significant part of the, the role that I played in twenty uh, in in, in two thousand and six and two thousand and seven especially, um, and and also two thousand and eight. Um, so I joined the company in, in two thousand and five, and and then ended up you know rotating out um, to, to to do the run for attorney general here in California um, in in late summer of 2009
0: was when I was when I stepped away from the company. Yep. And so what do you, you know, I I think, so I think you pinpointed it, right? I mean, a lot of the literature kind of out there when you talk to people, I think the key thing that separated Facebook from the other social networks was its focus on true identity, right? But when you kind of take the 30,000 foot view, um, it starts to look like that decision is more of a pattern of you know, the next right decision, the next right decision that Facebook has kind of consistently made. And and from the outside, it really feels like that's, you know, so that starts to move away from just kind of making good strategic tactical decisions, but having a very strong philosophy which leads you to make those kinds of decisions. You know, I think Facebook has always felt like a haven of very strong originalist thinking and really rooting, you know, product development and first principles. And I think, you know, today when you look at the company you can see how that's shaken out with the you know, acquisitions of Oculus and Instagram and WhatsApp. Right. Um, so, you know, what was – you were there kind of in the early days and, and as it grew and you see it obviously now. You know, what, what was it that made Facebook really work, um, you know, then and now? I, I will say that, that, I mean, when you, when you see something that, that turns into
1: the type of success that Facebook has been, that there's, there's often a belief that, that it was sort of foreordained in a, in a, in a variety of ways, and, and it was somewhat inevitable because there were all these first principles operating. And, and I do think that that's mostly right in the case of Facebook, although I would stress that some of the choices about, about hewing exclusively to identity were controversial within the company. And, and you still see some of the—they're uh, they're not today, um, and, and that's a good thing. Um, but, they, but they have been at, at various points. And, and I think that you do still see some disputes within the company showing themselves around, particularly around content moderation, and how, how strict or loose the, the, the approaches will be on that. Um, and and the, the systems designed to protect that identity layer are, are in, in a variety, uh, uh, in various ways of, of, of sort of strength and, and, and weakness over time, um, there, there still is somewhat of a fake account problem, um, which has driven a lot of the fake news problem that's, that's being discussed. And, and, you know, the company announced the other day that um, they were killing 30,000 accounts in France that were being used to spread, spread fake news uh, uh, ahead of the French elections there. Um, that are controlled by a variety of, of um, you know forces presumed to be part of the the Russian hacking network. Um, so there's a there's a whole bunch of, of different um, you know discussions that go on over time uh, about how uh, aggressive to be about um, about how how those those systems operate. Um, but the
2: the you know real identity did did win out. Um, certainly, in in a lot of the internal fights, and also interesting enough, you know, algorithmic
1: filtering of information. You know, in the early days when Twitter was all the rage, that there were some within the company who were very interested in going to a non-algorithmic feed and basically putting things up, you know, solely on a temporal basis. And eventually, that that product move was sort of beaten back after a couple of tests in that direction. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so a, a lot of it is empirical over time and and, and sort of learned learned behavior, but there's always uh, there's always a willingness to, to, to question um, you know some even some some deep assumptions. And luckily, the right forces, in my view, and, and certainly I think in the view of history, have, have won those battles um, for 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 the most part. Um, but there have been some missteps here and there. And, Including, you know, on on data and privacy um, at various times, and, and I think that the company has, has been able to, you know, go back to its first principles on uh, allowing people control over their information, and that that's, you know, when when they're when they're skewing strictly to that, that's a the, the company's in a good place.
0: Yep. Yeah, and it's interesting. I actually, I want to dive into that fake news issue a, a little bit later in the conversation in more depth. But one of the pieces I kind of want to focus on of what you just talked about is, is that notion of, of you know, conflict and kind of confrontational thought and how as a company, you kind of, you use that and you harness that to your advantage as opposed to, you know, letting it break your team apart. And I think, you know, Jeff Bezos's 2016 letter to shareholders kind of went viral over the last two weeks. And, He had a lot of interesting, he kind of spoke about this issue right at a higher level and about how he kind of keeps Amazon relevant, always focused on day one, in day one mode and harnesses that kind of confrontation and agree to disagree. But really, once you've disagreed, you've committed to kind of move forth. Exactly. um,
2: Disagree and commit
0: is the way that he put it. And I think that that's an excellent way to put it. Yep. are some things that need to be resolved
1: and you need to go in a particular direction, but everybody needs to be, you know, committed to the overall mission of the company and to, the, and to, to assuring that the operations um, continue in the direction that's been decided. Uh, and and that's, it, it is a great letter. And, and I will say that, you know, you know, Mark's letters to shareholders and his communications within the company have been particularly strong guidance points um, for the company over time, and, and it's it's been exciting to see him, you know, take some of that more public um, in the world with the letter that he's written about Facebook as a community building tool um, going forward.
0: Yep, no, I think that's right, and that's that's actually you know what I was getting to, which was kind of a two part two part piece. I want to get your thoughts on you know one is. Um, You know, Mark is obviously going to go down as history as one of the most influential figures. What about him kind of makes him so unique, the way he thinks, you know, the way he leads? And a secondary kind of related question on that note is, you know, Facebook, again, from the outside has struck me as a place that's had a very strong culture. And and I think it's especially interesting in an environment which uh, recently a lot of tech's, you know, biggest risers are are facing strong cultural crises and, and cultural issues, you know, Uber, Zenefits, Theranos, amongst others. Now I always find it inspiring as to how companies that have reached such scale, you know, I think Google is also a great example in this respect and I think over the next 10 years, Airbnb will probably play this out too. Um, but of having strong, you know, having a strong culture both internally focused as, as well as customer focus. So, you know, what, what is it, or what was it about, you know, Mark's kind of leadership, his, um, you know his personality that makes him so unique, and and secondarily, how do you think about you know culture and and kind of the challenges to maintain a strong culture? You know, you you're a co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, and and you guys, you know, as a franchise, as every sports franchise does, have had your fair share of cultural challenges on the court. You know, with the star player and DeMarcus Cousins. So how do you, you know how do you think about that in terms of maintaining a strong culture, whether it's a tech company, a sports team, government, you know, anywhere, any institution? Well, I mean, culture is. And being able to, you know, say that your organization
1: has a view and, and a set of beliefs is, is a really important, um, you know, path in guiding the the um, various personalities that, that, that you need um, to build a great organization. And And, you know, Mark has had a you know, at, at, at various times he's been able to achieve great clarity. And and you have to have understanding of both of what you're doing in the long run and of um, the times when you need to sort of let things play out and, and have, you know, understandings develop among a team instead of trying to, to, to dictate what, what you see might be the right answer. Um, you know, and ultimately, and, you know, we thought about this for the – last four years that we've had the Canes, you know, we, we've always wanted to build a long-term culture there. And we, you know, have obviously made a, a move recently to, to focus on a, a youth movement and to, to,
2: you know, have a lot of our younger players take the floor and, and we're excited about where that's going. Um, I do think that it, 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 it you, you have to live
1: your values at the end of the day and, and, and really, you know, demonstrate, um, the the you know how decision making follows forward and the, the leadership has to has to all reflect those values or or there need to be changes made in in the leadership and you know mark's gut on this i would not say it was perfect but it's is excellent and <laughs> and and that's been um you know a great a great um it's been excellent to see um wonderful leaders develop uh at, at facebook at all levels um and And you know for him to you know protect and promote and to foster uh, a great culture there over time um, I will say that, that there there was a lot of executive turnover early on
0: yep um and for and for a variety of good and bad reasons uh, and uh but over time it sorted itself out quite nicely yeah, no, that's interesting so. You know let's actually let's let's take that point a little bit and move kind of one step out. i'm I'm interested in getting your thoughts um, you know on a couple kind of different strains of the future of tech um, innovation and and government. And I think you're actually uniquely positioned to actually speak to all three. so let's you know let's start with I think one of the most interesting phenomenon going on in corporate America right now is actually the complete change in in landscape and composition of you know the fortune five hundred. you know companies in the fortune five hundred. You know, uh, used to have an average tenure of you know thirty five, forty years, and over the next decade, predictions are that that tenure is going to drop, you know, to about ten to fifteen years. And at the same time, the composition is changing. Um, you know, twenty sixteen was the first year that the five most valuable companies in the world by market cap were all tech companies: Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Facebook, Amazon. You know, I I think over the next ten years, this gap only widens. Right? I wouldn't be surprised if the fifteen to twenty biggest are going to be tech companies, both because of some of their tactical advantages, like attracting talent or hard harnessing advanced tech, like, you know, machine learning internally, externally. But also, I think, because philosophically, I think these companies really internalize the concept of disruption and, and how to think about it. So do you think, you know, how do you see kind of the landscape of, you know, the biggest companies and biggest enterprises that start to form in, in this country and around the world shake out? Do you think, you know, more tech companies start to dominate lists like the Fortune 500 or... Is it, you know, the incumbent companies in other spaces really wake up and, you know, become more savvy at acquisitions or product development, R&D, you know, et cetera? I
1: I do think that there are incredible cultural challenges towards turning, you know, sort of aircraft carrier-sized companies. (laughs) And that by the time you get to that type of size, that that you have have just unbelievable challenges. It's... Especially if the culture is not set in, in a way that it needs to be. And, and in most large companies, it's not. Um, you've seen Amazon grow markedly, but, but Jeff Bezos still preaches about the two pizza teams. You know, you, you never want a team bigger than you can, than you can serve two pizzas to. Um, you know, it, it, it always has to be smaller units that are actually getting things done and and that's it's it's hard and, and i think you've seen google struggle with size more than an amazon or a facebook has um although still obviously you know managing to be incredibly innovative and by hiring great people and great leaders you know you you can do some pretty amazing things and with the restructuring to alphabet and the multiple companies within the pantheon um, they they are, are trying to I think recapture a lot of yep, that yep. Um, and and I, and I do think that that was a, a smart move for them um, but but I think that they've had more trouble with size than Amazon has had or that Facebook has had quite quite frankly and Facebook has managed to stay still below 20,000 people um, at this point although it's rapid growth will take it past that um, I think I think in the next next few months um, and and Obviously, they're reaching out in a number of different areas, but it still managed to maintain, you know, a, a, a bunch of individual units. And and, and I think that they also smartly have gone to a a multiple brand strategy. Um, you know, Oculus is a whole new platform. You know, Instagram is essentially another brand um, that, that that's operating in somewhat the same space as, as as you know what they call the big blue app, the, 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 the Facebook mobile app. Yep. Um, but the, the connection points are all, if, if it's all plain, then WhatsApp, um, obviously, as well. You, you have all of these things flowing into a, a common um, advertising data architecture, which is how they make most of their money, um, and, and tying back to individual identities um, so that people can be served stuff that's more relevant, most relevant to them on all of those platforms. Um, so with that type of focus, you, you can you can basically, and, and with multiple brands and, and coming with slightly different experiences for consumers, you can have both a, you know, I think a, a, a huge growth path over time and, and longevity, um, but you can also have innovation within, uh, within those different units uh, and, and allow for, um, you know, and I think Facebook has done an excellent job with not, you know, forcing Instagram to be the Facebook mobile app, <laughs> and and not turning Oculus into um, just another wing of Facebook, but to allow it to develop uh, a, a bunch on its own, and WhatsApp um, to to think about how and and then you know Messenger, which they spun out of the main you know the main app originally, to to also be its own platform. You can you can encourage innovation in a number of different ways, even in bigger companies, if you have effectively kind of split things up that way.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think actually the unbundling and not trying to go the suite of products approach has kept Facebook really relevant. I mean, it's funny. I was looking at my phone before we got on the call, and I have a folder called Social, and in that folder is Messenger, the actual Facebook app, Instagram, yeah. WhatsApp. And if you don't kind of take a double look, you don't realize that actually four of those applications are owned by the same company. Right? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, and I think what it does, kind of from a customer-facing perspective, is it allows you that flexibility and mobility. From an internal-facing perspective, it allows you to have you know different metrics by which you can measure success. Right. You're not lumping everything together and trying to, you know, map. Um, you know, a product has to make. You know, it has to grow at X percent to meet. You know, our overall aggregate revenue. I think that's how a lot of the legacy kind of incumbent companies fail to disrupt themselves and, and kind of fall prey to, um, you know, a static kind of mode ultimately into irrelevance and, and kind of painful exit and death. And I think the interesting thing actually over the past couple of weeks, and, you know, I've started thinking about it a lot more, you know, as Facebook's, um, you know, conference on uh, AR, uh, where they announced kind of their moves into AR came out is, you know, which technologies are actually going to emerge. And I think when you take a step back, you know, Chris Dixon of Andreessen has had a really good point on this is, you know, when you overlay tech development and the financial cycles, you see an interesting trend, right? So in the financial cycles, um, the market's typically an indicator of emotional sentiment. There's a lot of volatility, especially in the short term. But when you look at tech product cycles, you know, tech product cycles progress at a pretty steady pace in a consistent manner. You know Every 10 to 15 years, there's a new fundamental breakthrough in, in technology products. And these time horizons have a gestation phase and a a growth phase and in each of these the like cycles of you know the platform goes mainstream and then applications are built on top of the platform and it becomes a mutually reinforcing cycle you know for the value of the platform so we saw this with the pc the internet mobile and now i think we're on the cusp of you know vr and ar so you know in your day-to-day or or you know just even per intellectual curiosity what kind of what tech wave do you think is going to be the next you know real wave to hit and and what really excites you about it?
1: Um, I, I think that uh, a lot of it is going to be the integration of technology into into the home. and uh, I, I don't think that that's been done well by anyone yet. Um, the presence of voice through google home and uh, and Alexa um, and Amazon Echo, um is, is a is a huge shift, but it's sort of the the only the beginning of, of all of of all of this. And I think that you know the spaces that people create for themselves, and having an integrated, you know, ambient computer environment uh, that, that can deliver information and, and provide for, for operations, I, I think that there's going to be huge moves in that direction. In some ways, it's going to be extensions of the smartphone and, and, the you know, the, the, the way that it interacts with cloud-based computing. Um, and, and you can certainly try to look at it just as a... Um, you know, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, another, as another platform that you're operating in. Uh, but but I do think that it's going to have a pretty foundational effect on the way that people, you know, expect to live their lives and the way that they spend their time. When you can get information more quickly from the, you know, essentially from the, the, the buildings and from the air around you and that you can have things, you know, operate what you want in, in not an not in augmented reality but in reality reality. <laughs> um I think that that's going to make a big difference in a lot of people's lives, and I think that it will, you know, be a, uh, a, a it, it will become a must-have feature a lot more quickly than, than you know adoption curves would, would generally um, would generally expect. I think it'll look much more like you know smartphone adoption curves than than, than like television adoption curves, for instance.
0: Yeah. No, I think that I think that's right, especially because of that notion, right, of the gestation phase and then, uh, you know, kind of the, the growth phase, right? I think with AR, you know, we're seeing it right now that, you know, Microsoft HoloLens, some of these products are actually out. They're interesting. They're fun to play around with. They've limited application. But as developers really get on to building applications for those platforms, the, you know, the value of those platforms is only going to increase. Same thing with, you know, the connected home. I think we're seeing the early innings of Alexa, Google Voice, etc., and I think as you know, all of the kind of macroeconomic tech trends go on, Moore's Law, um, etc. I think those platforms are going to get you know a lot more valuable. In that same token, you know, I, I worry sometimes about managing the downsides of these technologies, and I'll caveat that by saying, you know, I think it's always easier to frame the narrative around emerging technologies as negative, um, just because it's easier to imagine, you know, what goes away and what gets affected than yep. really people,
1: what. People that often yeah um, and, exactly
0: and, and, yeah. And it's what's the, well, it's the a, privacy
1: narrative around Facebook and the rise of the internet was something that you know I, I, I lived through quite <laughs> quite extensively and 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 that, that it just didn't have to be as negative as it was in, in so many circumstances that the no, positive that, possibilities get lost in in a, in a series of, of, of you know unreasonable handrings.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I I think that actually, you know, it has an interesting effect. It's probably a side conversation of, you know, how the financial markets deal with these companies. You know, I mean, you, of course, remember all the stories around Facebook's IPO, you know, and how the thing was never going to work and that couldn't have turned out more incorrectly. Right. I think people typically have that. It's very difficult to actually estimate how these things are going to turn out and really appreciate some of those fundamental mechanics when they when they integrate and they work together. Um, but you know, that all being said, um I think there are real downsides to some of these technologies that that need to be managed. And you actually mentioned it earlier in the conversation. You know, the fake news issue is is really particularly one that crosses my mind today. Um and you know, with live video, I think we you know we saw it on Facebook um you know this past week happen as well. Um you know, there are different kind of perverse ramifications or or byproducts of of how these you know technology of these technologies being available for mainstream. So you know, what are, you know, what are the types of protocols, you know, you think more generally apply to managing the downsides of technology? And, you know, how is a society, you know, should we be thinking about it? And, you know, possibly particularly of this question as an application, you know, what's your, what's your perspective on kind of the fake news issue um, these days? Well, I I, I, start with the fake news issue itself. It it, it is a real issue. And, And the, the,
1: um, presence of a set of manipulations around you know everything from the Cosmo pizza story um, to you know to to a, a whole bunch of you know really outrageous statements about um, you know about you know a lot of made-up things about Hillary Clinton and a variety of other players in in the presidential race here and the activities that have gone on in a variety of countries around the world you um, are, are things that platforms, to the extent that they want and demand and need user trust to persist over time, that they have to deal with. Um, as over time, they're, they're existential issues. If you can really destroy the trust in any platform, whether it's a democratic electoral platform or a technology platform, um, you you will hasten its demise. And, and the, the, the risk of, of um, you know, things falling apart, even for companies that are on top of the world, is much larger than people, um,
2: you know, I think would normally estimate that, that they often, you know, o- overestimate the,
1: down, the downsides and how everything could can go wrong when something's on the rise. But they also, once things are, are successful, um, you can overestimate the, the, the staying power that something has, particularly when there's an active, you know, what, what I would call a cancer on the platform, like um, like the easy spread of fake news and the manipulation that we saw in this last election. Um, I do think that Facebook recognizes that and, and has recognized that um, somewhat consistently over time, even though there are fights within the company over the extent to which, as a platform. Uh, the company should be inserting themselves into what they see as user behavior and choice and selection. Um, So it it does have some hard questions at the margin. Um, But the idea that, that you should be able to unaccountably put up unquestionably false information and then to weaponize that in some substantial way through manipulation of a platform is, it has to be wrong um, for the platform to persist as a, as a, as a you know, valuable um, you know, time and connection point for people over time. So Facebook, I think, fully recognizes that and has taken a variety of responsible actions. Um, one of the things that is low-hanging fruit for them, and, and I mentioned it earlier with the 30,000 accounts in France and, and um, the, the, you know, the moves that, that they have made, the fact that, that you have a culture on Facebook that is driven by real names and real identity is something that can be leveraged in a very positive fashion to shut down the fake accounts that have proliferated. And, um, and so you have to have better detection tools for that and be a lot more aggressive, uh, about how you, you know, remove that, even if you have a temptation to have traffic numbers go up. Um, or perceived traffic numbers go
2: up um, by the presence of those accounts. It's just not healthy for the for the ecosystem
1: over time to allow them to persist. And you can actually shut down a lot of the shenanigans um, that that are harmful to the long-term health of the platform just by paying attention to uh, who who the accounts are controlled by and, and and shutting down ones that are multiple. You know that there's there are logins to multiple accounts from. Um, you know, from the same IP address when there are rapid kind of in and out moves. And Facebook has built over time um, through the site integrity team a variety of techniques to detect fake accounts um, that are uh, that are used regularly on the network and that are critical parts of the network. It is somewhat of an arms race, though, in that area, and, and sometimes the site integrity team um, Falls behind a little bit, and they've they've certainly been working overtime to catch up lately, and that's and that's a
0: good thing. Yeah, I think the integrity piece is is nerve wracking on two fronts, right? From one front is that um, you know, of course, these technology platforms inevitably have vulnerabilities, and so there's a piece there that you have to shore up. And I, I agree. I think Facebook and a lot of the other leaders in the space are doing you know really good things to to stop the proliferation, and it's positive to see that the leadership at the top you know recognizes that. Um you know for the long term kind of sustainability and health of an ecosystem it's it's not good. The scary thing on the human intuition and human institution side is um that's not necessarily always the case, right? I think we've seen that shake out in the political environment, you know this cycle of um you know using using this kind of material or using these kinds of attacks to your advantage um when they when they play out your way um you know i'm I'm curious to to hear your thought on um, two things. You know, one is the, the role of kind of media in in thinking through how to navigate the space. I, I feel sometimes that when the news coverage and the news cycles cover, you know, some of these, um, there's a really good stat about this actually that I think Mark Cuban said that, you know, only 9% of adults are on Twitter. And so when, you know, when things happen on Twitter that end up getting broadcasted across Fox News, CNN, et cetera, you're actually bringing some of these things um, you know, to a much much bigger mass audience that that would have actually had initial, um, you know, initial receipt or exposure to that. So that's that's one question and kind of one thought on the media side. The other question, and it's related but it's slightly different, is, you know, uh, how do you think about the state of government kind of more broadly in this space? And and what I mean by that is, um, you know, the intersection of tech and government. Like if you take an example like self driving cars. I think the technology is there, but a lot of, you know, what will be important as that mass market story plays out is really how the state and national legislators, you know, treat the issue. Um, Right. So, you know, the first question again, you know, how do you think of kind of the media's role and, and, you know, what they should be thinking about as they approach these types of things. And then the second question, you know, what do you really see as kind of the sweet spot of government involvement in technology and how do you think it can be improved?
1: Well, I mean, Challenges to the way that government has traditionally reacted to these, because you know the way that, that connections have been built in the government space is that incumbents um, are, are always closer to the government, and um, you know not not just political incumbents, obviously, but incumbent firms, and it, it often gets tied to you know spending on lobbying, and and, and those are all relevant things, and, and the the factor of transparency in all of those dealings is is large. Um, but but a lot of, of the, the, the challenge is that the background facts about the world are changing in a more rapid fashion uh, than, than government can, can often move. And you have to, over time, in order to, for government to catch up, you have to have turnover and you have to have younger people with more experience sort of move there with more experience with the, the, the new world that's operating, kind of move through that system. Um, unfortunately, the, the sclerosis that, that has struck our political system, and this is one of the things that I kind of jumped back in to try to change, and, and I think that you're seeing, you know, a revolt against that sclerosis in in a, in a particularly ugly way with the Because it feels like it doesn't serve common people's interests fairly often. It, it, it is bloated and, um, and and not as connected, and, and it reacts badly to new entrants that are trying to change things. Um, the companies can have their own bad reactions and bad behavior, um, as we've seen, in, particularly in the Uber context recently. Um, and. There have been a number of other companies that, that have you know proceeded along those type of lines and, and ones that could have uh, that, that have been you know taken in a different direction by, by more direct engagement um, but even those companies that are that are for lack of a better word disruptive that are engaging in the political process meet a process that, that they are, are rarely understand, um, at the get-go, and that there aren't enough people in a translation layer to allow for conversations to happen. Um, that, that was something that struck me when I got back to Silicon Valley, and one of the reasons that I wanted to keep dialogue open with government, and one of the reasons that I was willing to step up and be a candidate myself, um, is that we, we need a lot more you know dialogue in these areas about the future, and the future that we want to build together. Um, Instead of you know, just a lot of oppositionalism on, 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 on both sides, um, the the mixed um, you know factor that you have to deal with, and, and this is something that, that Facebook faces regularly with you know mainstream media is that, that there is there is a, a protection of old models that is, that is going both in the production of content about new media and also in the way that that, that there will be discussions had in, in the corridors of power uh, about regulation and the way that regulation should work um, and, and, and government involvement in in addressing incumbents. we we found that repeatedly at Facebook that there were you know lobbying attempts against us launched by traditional media companies um, you know some some of which were entirely you
2: know
1: allowable and above board and some of which were borderline illegal <laughs> and and uh it, it, it was a, it was fascinating to see how um, aggressive a, a response you can get um where, um, you know, business models are threatened by the way that technology changes the world.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting, and, and especially in light of, you know, kind of what you alluded to a little bit of, you know, this is an interesting new administration, <laughs> um, uh-huh. <laughs> to say the least. And so, you know, what do you think we see for kind of tech, and, and that can be large tech, that can be startups also, um in in 2017 you know in the rest of 2017 what are the big stories i think you know on the optimistic side um we could see activity in the financing side you know partly given the expectation of you know cash companies will likely bring back from overseas if tax reform actually happens um and and you know i think that has derivative effects right that can lead to an increase in m a we've already started to see kind of the remnants of a nice enterprise tech ipo story start to form from q1 um, but other than the financing side I, I think we see a lot of stories on the technology side right we, we talked a little bit about this but we're seeing the maturations of mobile and I think the new underlying tech stacks of you know voice AR start to go a little bit more mainstream on the pessimistic side you know there's a ton of uncertainty given the turbulence in washington right and it, as it relates to tech you know I think it impacts you know startups and tech at the micro level startups especially i think there's more risk aversion, um, since they're uncertain, since there is uncertainty. And so the aggressiveness at which, you know, um, people would go after ideas might be tempered, um, due to, you know, not under, not knowing what's going to come of the business climate. But I think also at the macro level, right, you know, talent attract, one of the greatest sources of talent attraction in this country undoubtedly is immigration. Um, and so a lot of the rhetoric around immigration and, and folks feeling welcome in this country is, um, you know, could have serious, you know, has societal impacts. Of course, it can also have very serious impacts on, you know, the the legitimacy legitimacy of the you know of the economy of the U.S. So, you know, a lot, certainly a lot, right? Positive and negative could come from 2017 for tech. Um, how do you think about it? How do you see it playing out?
1: Well, I mean, I, I will say that I was dismayed by the um, way that certain forces within this administration um, were dressed to the in being so anti-immigrant in, in, um, in, in, in a way that I find un-American. Um, and I was heartened by how unified and quick the technology industry was to reply. And by the work that uh, so many people have done to oppose the Unconstitutionality of so much of what the administration is trying to do um, on immigration. The uh, problem, of course, is that courts blocking this does not um, remove the clear communication that um, the the administration that is currently in power in Washington is hostile to immigrants, and and, and the chilling effect that that will have. On people's
2: desire to come to the United States, um, and especially the people who are best educated and who we we, we should want here. <laughs> um, you know, when Steve Bannon says things like, you know, he's he's worried that a third of of of,
1: of uh, technology executives in, in Silicon Valley are, are, are South Asians. Um, it's it's racist and it's awful, and it needs to be you know addressed forthrightly and, and clearly, and the tech industry has, has done it largely. Um, so I'm heartened by the fact that the tech industry has done it, but I'm, you know, dismayed that, that the communication, uh, even though the actual actions have been blocked, um, you, you just have an administration that, that, that really needs to um, change its tune and fast. And that, um, it's hard, it's hard. It's just hard to, to see any of it as you know anything but but pandering uh, to the worst instincts um in, in politics and uh i i just you know i'm still kind of stunned that it actually happened <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, as a as a son of a indian immigrant uh, who has a dad as a technology company ceo i i wholeheartedly <laughs> empathize uh, and, I,
1: and look and you know, it's pretty, Three of my partners in the Kings are first-generation Indian-American immigrants. Um, you, know, the, uh, you know, Dustin Moskowitz is a, is a second-generation immigrant. Um, Steve Jobs was the son of a Syrian immigrant. Yep. <laughs> the, the,
2: the fact that, um, you know, we have driven so
1: much change uh, and positive change for the world uh, in America through immigrants is something that is an obvious fact. Um, To anybody who's paying attention, and uh, any move by an administration against that uh, should be aggressively resisted and and called out for the the awfulness that it is. And um, you know, like I said, to to its credit, the technology industry did respond quickly and and unmistakably uh, to fight these things. you know the the lack of thanks for that um, you know, comes in the, in the latest h one p discussions uh, from this administration. But um, but I, I think that the, the, the resistance certainly on that issue will be unified from the technology industry and, and will will continue to be a, a focus of, of some of the things that, that that those of us who are politically engaged in the industry um, you know are, are you know are deeply deeply, uh, you care about very deeply and and, uh, remain
0: deeply focused. Yeah, it's, no, it's hard to see how that can't be, you know, an important issue at the top of mind, given how much of the, you know, actual talent that drives and builds these companies is, is, um, is from, from immigrants. But, you know, Chris, as a, as a final question, um, and on a lighter note, uh, if you had to, you know, distill the most important lessons from your career, you know, into a few observations, if you were... Talking to yourself as a 1L at Harvard Law or, you know, a, a guy that had just come out of HLS, what are the things that you reflect on? You know, what what are the things that you would encourage you know, people in my shoes, peers of mine, to really think about and internalize as we, you know, start our careers, as we start to become, you know, early tenure in in our careers and, and really form and shape our paths. You know, what's, what's the kind of critical things that you would focus on or, or really place as, as priorities as you think through that kind of issue? Um, I, I really think it is about trying a lot of different things.
2: And, and that, um, you know, when you're at the point where you've made
1: it into Harvard Law School, you're always going to have a fallback um, of going to a firm or something like that. Um, but certainly think outside of, of that about where you really want to be in, in 10 years. And, and to the extent that financial security is part of paying off loans or things like that is part of it, that's, it's, it's okay, but you have to see it for what it is yeah. and, and really think about, um, how to, uh, how to, to, to find your passion, um, and, and to try a lot of different things to, uh, to, to determine what that is, um. Safety is, is okay, but it's overrated at the end of the day. And, and, and I think that, you know, if I, I, I would emphasize that, that my most interesting times were, um, you know, taking things that were perceived as crazy chances at the time. It, it was not at all obvious, um, certainly to any of my friends that going to work for a 21-year-old, you know, first-time CEO who dropped out of school. Um, you know and, and had a college website was, was, a, was a terribly intelligent use of my time. <laughs> I, I, I was told repeatedly you know and, and by and by a number of people who are more respected um, you know even around here that, 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 that it just wasn't going to work and it just wasn't going to happen. Um, I, I had pretty deep comfort that, that it could happen and that, um, and that I could help. Uh, in, in, in that, and also look for things that that um, that hit your skill set well, that where you can really provide um, additional juice to a project. And and I thought that, that the understanding that I developed about data and its importance in the world, and privacy, and and how that gets expressed in terms of control, and the need to build technology around that, and not just either give lip service to it or try to shut down all, all data uses. Um, trying to find a way that people could really benefit from the information that they're generating in their lives, and from the way that uh, that they, uh, you know, move in the world, what 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 it can do to provide them with a better, a more connected experience with other human beings, and you know, I, I saw that as Facebook's mission from the beginning, and, and um, you know, I, I just I, I think that you know finding mission-driven uh, projects to work on that. Are is a, is a critical part of, of you know finding some semblance of happiness, <laughs> and and ultimately that is you know a critical part, and and also you know finding and, and um, you know and, and and you know be a good friend and and find good friends. Yeah, um, having a, a coterie of, of people around you um, in in business and in life is is you know the the. The the largest longitudinal study of, of, of human happiness is is the Harvard Men's Study, um, and and it comes to the conclusion that it's the relationships with the people around you that you build that actually drive most of your you know your your pleasure over time and your and your comfort and, and happiness. So you know, pay attention to the people around you. Um, a lot of people at Harvard end up in in a very kind of careerist mindset, and you know whether it's. A need to end up at the top firm, or to end up in the U.S. Attorney's office, or you know, it, it can have government dimensions to it too. <laughs> Even though the, the the money's the money's different on that front. <laughs> um, but it, a lot of that stuff, it, it's it's good to do things that that have wonderful. Um, Public and personal benefits over time, but find something that that's really mission driven for you, and and then find a way to get paid for
0: it. Yeah, I really like that synopsis, Chris. Well, look, you know, thanks again so much for taking the time. This has been really enjoyable um, on a substantive front and and on a personal front on on getting your perspectives on a whole myriad of issues. So, really appreciate the time, and um, it was a lot of fun. Well,
1: it's great to chat with you, Romain, and I'm sure we'll be talking soon.